0: Hello and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about Denny Villeneuve's Dune and I'm happy to be joined by blockbuster correspondent Ben Lubin. Ben, what's up? I mean,
1: you know my brand so well.
0: <laughs> and, we're, and we're also joined by Fred Cobb, who I get to uh, get these two together on the podcast for the first time. I'm excited about that. Fred, how's it going?
2: I am too. Good to see uh, both of you guys.
0: Yeah. So as I mentioned before, Dune is the newest movie from director Denny Villeneuve. Is it adapt? It is adapted from the 1965 Frank Herbert novel uh, by Villeneuve himself, John Spates, and Eric Roth. It is set in the year ten one ninety one, where Duke Leto of House Atreides, played in this movie by Oscar Isaac, is the ruler of the ocean planet Caladan, and is assigned by the all powerful Emperor uh, Shaddam to replace. Uh, House Harkonnen as the fief rulers of Arrakis, a harsh desert planet uh, and the only source of spice, a valuable substance that is a uh, great aid to technology, but also a uh, valuable substance that can, you know, improve health and but also is kind of a hallucinogen at the same time. The emperor actually intends to have House Harkonnen stage a coup and to uh, retake the planet from House Atreides uh, as you uh, know as a way to limit their power, but that's not completely known to uh, House Atreides uh, until it's a little too late. Leto has a son named Paul, played by Timothy Chalamet, who is uh, meant to possibly one day uh, assume his father's role. Uh, But at the same time, he's also being uh, trained by his mother, played by Rebecca Ferguson, in the ways of the Ben Gesserit, a... Typically exclusively female order wielding a bunch of uh, witch-like powers that can, uh, you know, they have advanced physical and mental capabilities where they control others and things of that nature. All the while, Paul is having visions of Arrakis and the Fremen people who, uh, the indigenous people who inhabit the planet and uh, specifically a uh, vision of a Fremen girl named Hani, played by Zendaya, who also narrates part of this movie. Uh, as I mentioned before, Dune, it's been around uh, for 56 years in some forms. Uh, David Lynch uh, adapted it into uh, one movie in uh, 1984. And I think there have been some other tries at adapting it. And it's has been widely known for a long time. It's just very, very well-respected popular text that for one reason or another has been uh, very difficult to adapt. So a lot of people who, you know, know D- Denny Villeneuve is a guy that is just uh, very, very adept at making sci-fi films is like we're really intrigued when he was going to make this movie. So uh, Ben, I first want to ask you, I guess I as someone who like Came into this like very intentionally, I guess, and also unintentionally, because who knows, if I had the time, maybe I would have read the book or um, watched uh, David Lynch's movie. Maybe I would have done it, but I didn't really know much. I just knew that, like, look, this is a it's a long book and uh, presumably a lot of people have taken cracks at it. So I'm wondering, in your opinion, is there like another reason beyond the fact that like, hey, it's a very long and dense story that has made it like so challenging for different people to try and adapt to the screen?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So just first off to kind of give a little context for my relationship with the books, because as anyone who's like heard me on the podcast before might know, this is not necessarily the most on-brand thing in terms of like what I normally talk about on this podcast. But I really, really love the Dune books up through basically the the, the books that Frank Herbert wrote while he was alive. And in general, Josh, I'm just going to try to be very forgiving on pronunciations with this one. I'll look past the, uh, the, the Benny Jesseret. Uh, mispronunciation
0: there um okay benny jester okay yeah
1: but yeah no i I really love the books and i think part of what i love about them is also part of what makes them so difficult to adapt because i think there is a tendency to make something this big and flashy and filled with kind of sci-fi like visual elements and technology there is a a, almost just like a corporate desire to make that into like more of a Star Wars style space opera. And that is distinctly not what Dune is, either Dune the first book or Dune as a series. It is much stranger, much more poetic, much more inscrutable, much more philosophical, and much denser than I think a straightforward Hollywood adaptation could really capture. By the same token though, if you try to capture everything interesting, compelling, and strange about Dune that really makes it what it was, you kind of need a big enough budget that it's not really feasible to do that outside of kind of the studio system. So Mm -hmm. Dune as a property is kind of caught between these two extremes. Like as much as you want like a more artistically minded indie filmmaker to uh, take a stab at something more ambitious, They also need the money to do it right, Um, which I think is one of the things that people have struggled with in trying to make Dune. Um, How do you make a version that, you know, is realistically profitable enough to get made, but also does justice to the density and the honestly somewhat critical of modern Western culture elements of the books. Um, so I think that's a lot of what people have struggled with.
0: So before I go to Fred, then let me ask, as I, I know you generally are a fan of Villeneuve. So yeah. no, knowing all that, when you heard he, he, he was announced as the guy that was going to tackle this, were you like, that makes sense? He's probably the one guy I would trust with that. And or was your reaction something else? And ultimately, how do you think he did?
1: So it's that's actually a, a funny story about that. Originally, when it was announced, my first reaction was, well, unless they're going to give it to Alejandro Jodorowsky, I'm not interested, just because I didn't really think that anyone was going to do it justice.
0: You, you, um, you, bro- you broke up for a second. You said Alejandro who? Uh, yeah, Alejandro Jodorowsky,
1: who famously tried to get his version of Dune made for a, quite some time and uh, it's a, did not happen.
2: That story, by the way, if you're familiar with Terry Gilliam and his uh, attempt to get The Man Who Killed Don Quixote made, uh, it, that story pales in comparison to that Dune attempt in the 70s. Yeah. Like, it's a really insane story.
1: Uh, it's worth seeing the documentary about it, too. Um, mm, yeah. student Dune. Uh, can go into that later, but as different from the books as that would have been, that is still one of, like, I dream of somehow that movie being made, even though it never will. But I so I wasn't entirely confident in 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 Villeneuve not because I don't I didn't love Villeneuve but just because I didn't really think anyone was going to be able to, to make Dune work. And then I actually went to a screening of an older movie of his, uh, Incendies, um, and he did a Q and A afterwards. And this was like pretty shortly after it got announced that he was going to be making Dune, and obviously people were asking questions about it. And just hearing the way he talked about the material and hearing like the very clear love in his voice, I started to have a lot more hope. And I'll say I was going in cautiously optimistic, but with a lot of trepidation up until I actually saw the movie, because I really do like Villeneuve a lot. I think he first off is one of the few filmmakers who was able to make movies that fall under the category of blockbusters or at least like big spectacle entertainment that actually induce a real feeling of awe. Um, I think Arrival did that. I think Blade Runner 2049 did that. And I think that's something that it's, the, the list is basically him, George Miller and no one else. So there's that, but I also think that he is able to explore philosophical ideas on screen in a compelling studious and non-didactic way that I find very interesting. And that gave me hope for the way he would handle the that material and do. I liked Dune a lot. There, I had problems with it. There are things that I wish he did differently. There are choices that I'm disappointed in. Overall, I liked it a lot. The one thing I'll say, though, Dune, the 2021 movie, covers the least interesting section of the first book. Um, From my perspective, Dune really starts to become more interesting, richer, more thought-provoking, and more compelling um, past the section that this first movie covered. So do I think this movie was perfect in isolation? No, um, but I do think it was a very good adaptation of this particular section of the book. And even if I had problems with it, it gave me at least a good amount of hope
0: for where he's going to be going going forward. I got you. Fred, when you were told me at some point i feel like it had to it might have been early 2021 when like we were just doing one of the podcasts and we like you we asked what you had been what you wanted to plug if you've been consuming anything recently i think you said i'm reading dune
2: quick aside i read dune before the original release date because at that point it still seemed like it was going to come out in 2020 and then of course it got pushed back by an entire year so the whole exercise of uh making myself right. more familiar with the story right before the movie came out. <laughs> yeah, it's
0: a fool's errand oh. because... Well, you might time to marinate with
2: it. You know? <laughs> that is a good point, Yeah. <laughs>
0: Okay, you go. Know, that just tells you how like time is just so confusing at this point. I, I knew we had talked about it at some point during the pandemic, but like I guess it was over a year ago now, probably because you, I know you would have started it before November of last year when we thought it was maybe coming out in November of last year. I think, I think at one point it had a November 2020 release date or December, it was November, December. And so, I mean, it's a whatever you read it. And I didn't really necessarily ask you what you thought of it because I think at that point we, we had already decided you might do this podcast. And I'm like, All right, I'll talk about it with them then. So I know you read it at some point, but I know you did kind of did it as like, I'm going to do this as like homework in advance of the movie. And you're not necessarily someone I just knew like Ben probably had some kind of like passion for the book. So did you do did you get through the book because you're a completist and not because you liked it? Or did you like actually really like it? And uh, what did you ultimately think of how uh, Villeneuve did in trying to capture what makes that the book a famed text?
2: So the reason why I initially read the book was because there are some infamous stories out there about the 1980s version which I watched a few days ago, but we can get to that later. And when that came out in movie theaters, apparently uh, they had to pass out laminated glossary cards because of the terminology uh, to make sure that people would actually understand what was going on in that movie. In part, that's because the 1980s version doesn't explain a lot of that stuff very well. But I was concerned that if I was going to subject myself to uh, Villeneuve's version of the entire thing without having experienced a book before, that I'd be uh, a little lost. And in hindsight, that was probably a good call to read the book first and to familiarize myself with some of uh, the jargon that Frank Herbert throws in there Uh, because it is quite a lot. And the book does a really good job after about 100 pages um, of explaining all of that. So you really get acclimatized to that world. There's some funny stories out there um, since you name dropped Star Wars as a, a comparison of what Dune isn't as a science fiction franchise. Both Alec Guinness and Peter Cushing had a really hard time with uh, their dialogue for those movies because they didn't actually understand some of the words and I didn't want that to happen to me when I watched Dune. So my goal was really when I watched this, I'm going to be able to already understand all the terminology and I don't uh, have to sit there wondering what exactly is going on. And that helped. Even though it had been an entire year since i had read the book, um, I was at a point where A lot of the jargon that they used uh, was already familiar, and I was able to just enjoy the vision of it without having to overthink it all. As far as the movie itself is concerned, um, a lot of what Ben says uh, are my feelings as well. It was heartening to see that this was a part one that was made for very good reasons, in the sense that it actually allowed Villeneuve to cover uh, that part of the story uh, in detail as opposed to the studio trying to squeeze extra money out of the property by splitting it into two parts. This is a part one that is very necessary in the sense that I'm sure it'll pay off very nicely two years from now when we actually get part two, um, that a lot of the groundwork that is needed for some of the later developments have actually been explored uh, more intrinsically than it would have if that part of the book would only have gotten a one hour section and maybe a two or th- in a two or three hour movie. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's going to pay massive dividends, I think, down the road that they did it that way. As much as I would have
1: loved it to be one five-hour movie that never (laughs) would have actually gotten made.
2: Got (laughs) them. And one last thing, uh, even though I wasn't necessarily happy about the temper tantrum he threw a year ago, uh, that the movie would also be released on HBO simultaneously, because I thought a lot of the points he made were accurate, but kind of not in the context of what was going on in the world at the time. There are very strong reasons, I think, why Warner Brothers had to take that action, even though it was poorly communicated. That's a different story. But I would say the product itself vindicates him in the sense that seeing this on the big screen is really an important part of the experience, as opposed to seeing it at home on your TV, where you're only going to experience a fraction of uh, that sense of awe that Ben been described very well. Uh, that the movie is meant to uh, create in its viewers.
0: I know Ben agrees with you on that. And I, and I and I also do, and I would encourage anyone that at this point, by the time people listen to this, people have already made up their minds, I guess, as to which way they're seeing it. But if by any chance you come across someone that hasn't, encourage them to see it in the theater. But I want to touch on what Fred said about like his purpose in reading the book and being the terminology and being able to become acclimated to the world a little easier by just knowing all that stuff because my big takeaway from this movie as someone that was just a novice and didn't know much about dune at all going in was that i was really impressed with how villeneuve conveyed just so much of this world and did it in a way where it didn't feel like i was just like listening to a lot of exposition um sure there's some there's that zendaya monologue but it's maybe a little it's I, i i get what the purpose is of having paul watch those videos But it still felt a little it felt a little different than just having a lot of long monologues where everyone explained how that world worked. And, you know, sometimes I get a little overwhelmed if I'm dropped into a big world like this and have little context for it. It can be hard to follow everything that's going on. And there are a couple of things here and there that maybe I was a little slow to pick up on, not knowing any better. But for the most part, I felt like Villeneuve trusted me and trusted other people that were as unfamiliar with this as me to kind of get what he was doing. And like I ultimately I felt like I ultimately did get it. And that, and, and overall, like I would say, I get what you guys are saying too about, yeah, it's not necessarily perfect that they had to cut it off here, but I trust that a lot of people who I trust are saying, if you're going to cut it off somewhere at this point, this is where you may as well do it. And knowing that, I guess I'm, I'm like, look, if this is where it it made sense to cut it off and he's going to get that part too. And uh, it's in at this point, I know when a lot of people initially like reviewed it, that were are, like more professional critics than I am, like it, that news hadn't broken yet. Uh, so that a lot of the initial coverage that came out about the movie was people being like, well, yeah, but he better get another one because then this is a silly endeavor. Now, as of the, as of the time we're sitting here doing this, there is going to be another one. So we don't really have to have any qualms about that. And knowing that, like, OK, he probably ended this part of the story where it made sense to uh, banking on getting another movie yeah, maybe this isn't like the most complete story, but like everything that I saw was like extremely well executed, both from a visual standpoint and a narrative standpoint, because like I felt like I was able to keep up with those narrative through lines. Whereas, you know, part of me was a little worried about how was I going to be able to do that when everyone's always talked about how dense this story is. And I just feel like uh, ben, ben spoke earlier about how he clearly had a love of this text. I, I've read other interviews from when he saw him at a, um, at a Q&A, and I've read other interviews where he's kind of reiterated that like this book meant a lot to him as a child. And I think it showed that he had very good command of it because I feel like he just knew how to tell this story in a way that was going to be accessible to people that just weren't diehard fans of the source material.
1: Yeah, I think, so in terms of Dune being dense specifically, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think, and, and this does sort of get to... One of the issues I had at least a little bit with with this first movie, part of the fear I had going in and part of something I was seeing from some critics who weren't as happy with with this adaptation is that Villeneuve would on some level try to flatten a lot of what makes Dune as not just narratively dense, but philosophically dense as it is. And there were a few, there, there, there was one particular element of the adaptation that I really did not think worked quite as well. I, there, there, and I And I can get to why exactly I have a little bit of hope that it may be addressed better going forward. I really did not love the treatment of Paul as a character. And I think there was at least some attempt to, to make him more of a center point in this first movie than he really is in the text. Um, Like part of what makes Paul's journey so interesting over the course of the series as a whole, not just the first book, but the series as a whole, is that his role in the story is very much as a participant in these larger, almost philosophical and historical narratives that he's almost occupying a place within. Like I've said before that Dune is an incredibly Hegelian series in the way it deals with The arc of history and people basically consciously trying to create and accelerate particular arcs of history. And I don't want to spoil too much about that because that does involve some stuff later in the series. But I do think that there was some attempt in this first movie to kind of center Paul and center the events of the story around Paul a little bit more than I wish they did. And the moment that gave, gave me at least some hope that this was more just a thing in the first movie and won't necessarily be how Villeneuve kind of addresses it going forward is my personal favorite scene in the movie, the scene in the tent where basically Paul gets a vision of who he is, who he will be forced to become and of basically the events that are to come for him and for this, his, his role in the story. Uh, It is the most, for me first off the most visceral moment in the movie but it's also the moment where we start to see paul carry not only weight, the weight of who he is as this young man thrust into unfamiliar circumstances but as someone carrying this consciousness of this like great and grand historical figure with almost cosmic perception who he is gradually being forced to step into the shoes of and again it's he is a very strange Character, especially in the context of sci-fi fantasy protagonists, because Paul is not Luke Skywalker, not just because he's a darker character, but because a lot of his journey deals with in some way the notion of being a protagonist. And again, I'm trying to be very vague because this also deals with stuff that's not only later in the first book, but later in the series as a whole. And so I don't necessarily love some of the things about how Paul a character is a character's use in this first movie. And I also, I do not think Timothy Chalamet was particularly great casting. I, weirdly enough, the actor I kind of kept flashing back to is if Dev Patel was 10 years younger after yeah. having seen him in the green night, I could see him having been a very good Paul trace
0: Yeah. I typically actually like Timothy as an actor, but I, but I, but, I, but I wasn't sure how to feel about this because, again, I don't exactly know what that guy's supposed to look like. And it, it, it feels like it spends a lot of this movie having him not really be. He's not really sure what he's supposed to be. So, I mean, if someone's really not sure who they're supposed to be yet, are they, how much charisma can you expect them to necessarily have in their role? And I'm not saying your, your criticism is a lack of charisma. I just obviously didn't have a point of reference for him. So I was like, all right, well, I guess he's doing what he's asked. And it seems like he's going to be asked to do a lot more in the next one. So I'll reserve my judgment for now. You know, well, I
1: think part of what it is, is Villeneuve has talked about in interviews how he on some level sees the story as a coming of age story. And I don't necessarily agree with that. I was talking about this with another friend who also really loves the books. And I think the thing we both agreed on is that, again, the Paul's journey is not coming into his own; it is, on some level, coming into his his place within these larger historical, philosophical, religious narratives. Um. And it's 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 hard to kind of put your finger on because Paul is just such an interesting and unique character. But that that was kind of the 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 one worry I had that wasn't entirely like assuaged. There, there are definitely some other problems I had with it too. like I don't love the movie's depiction of the fremen and that but that is also something that we didn't really see a ton of them in this one. So I do have hope that they'll be fleshed out a little bit more and treated as more than just kind of noble savages.
0: Yeah. which is kind I'd, of what
1: they are in this movie.
0: Yeah, I, th- I mean, it, it couldn't be any more clear at the end that like we're going to probably pick up right with them uh, whenever we get Dune part two. Yeah. Uh, Fred, how, how, did, how did you feel about Paul based on how you viewed him as a character and how they ultimately portrayed him here?
2: So I would say the big difference between Dune and Star Wars, since we keep coming back to that comparison, is that Star Wars at its very core is a very traditional good versus evil story. And Dune isn't that. Uh, I mean, to an extent, there are some different shades of gray in there. I mean, the Atreides family is clearly uh, more on the right side of history than the Harkonnen family is. And I think even in the book, it's pretty clear that, that there's not really a lot of uh, positives to that particular uh, clan. Um, I think what is a lot clearer in the book book. And part of that is also that every chapter and I don't think I'm spoiling too much when I say that every chapter kind of opens up with an excerpt from a historical text, uh, written by an author that we haven't met yet. And in that sense, it's clear in the book already that we're sort of getting to read this as historical events that have already taken place. And Paul as a character is moving towards his inevitable destiny that has already been written, in essence. And there's something really fascinating in that because Paul as a protagonist is not necessarily a conventional hero. Like he comes to a point eventually where this kind of idea that we see when he talks to his father at the beginning, um, that he's tried to bring him up to be a good person, a good son, but that he isn't necessarily intent on him uh, becoming a leader if that is not the path that Paul wants to head down and the movie kind of embraces that idea that Paul does eventually by the end come to the point where he is sort of ready to assume that leadership because he knows that his father has died. Uh, he has that ring now. So he is in essence, the head of the family. And there is that one scene where Duncan Idaho meets him in the desert. And he does address Paul as uh, my Duke, where you kind of see that Paul is now essentially the leader of that house and sort of the last remnant of, uh, the resistance against the Harkonnen family and the emperor uh, taking over the planet again. And I think that's kind of where this structure of making this a part one and having part two only come out in a few years kind of works against that character arc because we don't really see Paul grow into that role yet that history has seemingly assigned him. It just kind of ends on a strange note where He hasn't really done a lot of growth as a character yet because he's only really been confronted by the major events that kind of push him on a totally different path in the book. So that's where I think the movie struggles a bit because on one hand, uh, Villeneuve is trying to introduce us to Paul and set him up as this really fascinating character. We're going to follow for these two and a half hours and presumably two and a half more hours. Um, But we haven't quite reached a point yet where he really justifies yet why we're supposed to be as invested in him as the movie wants us to be.
0: You guys have both mentioned that just like, it's it's not as black and white as something like Star Wars, which I mean, I even I, even I can glean from watching this. Uh, but I am curious, like, you know, we're basically ostensibly told, yes, the, the Atreides is good, Harkonnen bad. And we're told that the Harkonnen treated the Fremen pretty poorly. And we see, let us tell the Fremen he's going to treat them better. But that's all we really have to go off of. Uh, at, and at, at a certain point, like, I mean, I'm sure a lot of ink has been spilled on this point before, but, you know, uh, in, a, in a way that they, they are colonizers all in the same. They're just a different, they're just a different group of colonizers. And you, you mentioned, Ben, you mentioned already how, like, you didn't particularly, like, think the movie did the best job of depicting the fremen though i actually really thought javier bardem made the most of his couple scenes but at the same time it's like i i i don't know if the movie i i I think the movie does make it kind of clear like hey they're they're the ones encroaching on their territory here i'm sure that i'm sure that there's just a lot more in the parts of the books that haven't been covered yet on screen that like about that and what that means and everything like that but i mean do you think that the the movie did i mean what it could in at least like Making it clear that, like, just because the Atreides uh, house says they're going to be better doesn't necessarily mean like they're, you know, 100% pure in all this. Do you think it handles that part of the story well as opposed to just maybe, you know, making it feel like, hey, just go be their cheerleaders?
1: Well, I'm really glad you actually transitioned me into that because that's something I wanted to talk about. Yeah. some Something that, again, this is one of the first things people talk about when people talk about Dune. It, it was in many ways the first work of ecological science fiction and it was also an inherently anti-colonialist uh, piece of science fiction in the way, especially in the way it looked at how western capitalist viewpoints approached uh, natural resources and contrasting that with uh, so we, this is kind of more a piece of trivia than anything else but there, there's kind of this narrative that the Fremen are specifically stand-ins for basically Middle Easterners And there's a very huge influence there, but it's also a bit reductionist. Like a lot of Herbert's uh, views, like the depiction of the Fremen and kind of a lot of the root of the invention of the Fremen came from his views of Native American culture. Uh, And so there there was on some level, even if just, especially because of the setting of Arrakis, there's a pretty heavily uh, like Middle Eastern influence on the Fremen. He is kind of bringing a lot of just kind of his view of honestly, people of color from around the world who are are kind of, kind of have a closer relationship with the actual land they occupy. But yeah, there, there is a view of colonial colonialism specifically that is pretty critical in Dune. And I do think the books do, the, the, the movie does a good job of capturing that even if, The Atreides have a more compassionate view towards the Fremen. They are still approaching it from the context of an outsider, and they are still, even if they think of themselves as being kinder to the people, they still are so outside of this context that they have no idea how to actually relate to, again, the natural resources to the Fremen's culture, which is so alien to the Atreides. Like, there's that. Moment in the in the movie that is, I, again, I think really works, but in isolation because we don't know more about the fremen does kind of feel a little generically noble savage of the uh, exchange of fluids, which again, if you know the like the the larger culture of the fremen as a whole, and this idea that the body's moisture is something sacred and important and to like to spit and to give up your moisture is something incredibly
2: meaningful as a gesture your tears as well
0: yes yeah the, your tears. i saw i went back and rewatched parts of the movie uh i didn't have time to do the whole thing but like the actual spitting sequence with the first bardem scene like That plays as comedy on your first viewing if you don't know any better, and then like if you watch it again, you're like it plays totally different once you like fully understand just like how little water there is on that planet.
1: Yeah, but I I do think the movie could have done a little better job of kind of setting up the actual weight of that sequence because it does it does get played for comedy a little bit, and I don't think. And again, this is the danger of just this section not really diving into. The unique culture of the Fremen quite as much. Like it, you you picked up on this, Joshua. So it's not exactly a spoiler, but yeah, part two we're spending a lot more time with the Fremen. But because we don't have that more personal knowledge of, again, their cultural codes, just their cultural context, moments like that get played for comedy, and I don't necessarily think that was the best choice. And and it, on some level, yeah, you are a prisoner of the sector of just this particular section of the book. But I do think with the knowledge that Villeneuve was knew going in, he was only adapting this section, he could have done a better job of maybe giving us a little bit more of their culture rather than just kind of saving it and treating them in this kind of somewhat flattening way. To quickly address something about your original question though, part of what makes Dune not necessarily a pure good versus evil story is, and again, this is something just as I have said a lot, deals with books past the first one. Even our conception of good versus evil and the Atreides as the good force to the empire and House Harkonnen's evil is shaped and influenced by outside forces. What those forces are, I am not going to spoil too much. But, and this does kind of go back to what I was saying about Dune being a very Hegelian story. Herbert was very consciously depicting. The ways people attempt to influence the arc of history as a whole. And that includes the construction of who the heroes are. And that is all I'll say about that because there is there is so much I want to say.
0: Well, I appreciate I appreciate you uh, doing a job at using your discretion, where to go and where not to go, given that you you know a lot more about this stuff than I do, and probably a decent chunk of the listeners. Fred, what did you think about how the movie uh, treated treated the Fremen and how they positioned? House of Treaties in relation to both them and, and Harkin. And I know like you, you, you were the first one to make the point here where it's like, again, it's, it, it's clearly not Star Wars, but do you think that it captured that ambiguity well?
2: So Ben already brought up that there is obviously a very strong colonial aspect to all of this, and that Frank Herbert is sort of trying to uh, uh, do a bit of a deconstruction of uh, early 20th century politics in some of those regions, um, especially in the Middle East. Um, the comparisons in the book are actually even more pronounced than in the movie, especially because there is some terminology used in the book uh, that the movie smartly omitted, uh, which I think. Did they makes use sense. the word
1: jihad? I for, I forget.
2: They did not. They did not use the yeah. word jihad, uh, which is probably the right call. Oh, because the other thing is, it's not just I think it doesn't share a lot of overlap just with colonialism, but also I think with sort of the political constellations that were present in Europe during World War One, um, where you had. Um, sort of a power-hungry emperor who wanted to expand influence and wanted to hold on to his power. Uh, there is a strong noble class with different families who are all sort of trying to protect their own interests um, and who are vying for power um, in different regions. Um, and then, of course, you have the spice itself, which I think it's very easy to make the comparison that it's meant to be oil in the Middle East and power is trying to fight over it because it makes everybody a lot of money. And whoever has uh, the power of the purse uh, gets to determine how the world works, essentially. And that historical comparison probably isn't as prevalent 100 years after the end of World War I anymore as it would have been in the 1960s when that generation was probably, at least to an extent, still alive or was more familiar with some of the political activities that had happened in the Middle East uh, in between the 1910s and 1940s when the British and the French um, kind of went in there and did a really messy job of carving up the entire thing to a point where some of the conflicts that started back then are still very much present in the region today. Um, And I think there is a very strong aspect here just of what happens when uh, invaders take charge of a region, regardless of what their intentions are, that it's going to create conflicts that obviously wouldn't have been there if they had never arrived in the first place. Um, Mm. And the idea of then they are doing that introduction, I think, that monologue. Um, it's not necessarily, I think, um, all he could have done, uh, I mean, Villeneuve, to establish the Fremen uh, and what their sort of like cultural uh, background is, because it's really just a three-minute monologue and that doesn't convey a whole bunch of stuff. But at the very least, what he does there is he opens it up with them and their perspective, as opposed to what happens um, in the 1984, 84 well 84 yeah the 1980s movie uh, from david lynch which kind of introduces the whole premise in a very different way a much sloppier way that kind of feeds into some of the other problems that movie has with just dropping way too much exposition very inelegantly and i think at the very least here in this movie you had a more sort of aesthetical way of doing it because at the very least uh it gives the fremen the opportunity to sort of present their view of things first so Fred
1: made a really good point about how the, the spice is obviously in some way a stand in for oil. But I do think part of what makes the notion of spice so interesting and again gets to something that is so colorful and compelling about Dune in the context of kind of popular science fiction, spice is not just something that is a resource. It is something that shapes consciousness. Like the, it, it is treated as a psychoactive drug and also a method of revelation. And I do think that like rather than just being oil, like rather than just being this thing that is consumed, there is a a very interesting attempt uh, on Herbert's part to use spice as something that not only is a resource, but drives connection to the world as a whole. Spice is so embedded in not only the technology of, of Dune, but again, the actual Fremen culture itself, the way Fremen view the world. For Paul, it is, in the movie too, a method of revelation, something that actually awakens the beginnings of this kind of cosmic perception. And again, Dune Dune gets very strange, and one of the things that, especially if, the, I mean, the, the rumor is that the supposed third Dune movie is going to cover the events of Dune Messiah, which is the second book, and if The first Dune is strange and philosophical and often surreal in the context of popular science fiction. Dune Messiah is a whole level past that. And so it'll be very interesting to see how Villeneuve treats that. But the inherent surreality and almost psychedelia of Dune is something that I think the spice uh, is a very important part of and that I think is part of what makes it more than just a a stand-in for oil. Not to say that, like I think Fred was saying that's all the spice is, that it's like a one-to-one replacement. But I do think it is a very interesting choice for Herbert to use this kind of the natural resource that people are fighting over as something that actually specifically drives people's connection to the natural world itself.
2: And it makes sense that Herbert would have done that just as a quick piece of trivia. It's well known that he was taking psychedelic drugs as he was writing (laughs) Dune. He was even growing his own mushrooms at home, essentially. So it makes a lot of sense that this sort of like mind enhancement would have played a strong part uh, in his writings as well. And that's probably why a lot of the much more surreal scenes that are in the book that haven't really been covered in the movie yet uh, are where they are. Again, part two is going to
0: be way more interesting. Yeah. As a former journalist, I've always heard the term
2: "write drunk, edit
0: sober." But you know, uh, write. I guess As a say, writer, writer, I can
1: confirm. Um, yeah, but
0: but I, but I guess you can also say like I don't know, uh, write while tripping and edit sober too. Um, the uh, it's fun. It's yeah, like you're saying. I I get why it, the spice might not be one to one oil, but it, it's clearly something there. Whereas, I mean, I I don't know. Like, I mean, maybe you guys can correct me, but like, I don't know. If there's there's no such necessarily. I don't know. There's not such an obvious real world analog. Uh, um, uh, for the Bene Gesserit, right? And I, I'm i curious, like, it's it seems not, like- It's not
1: a one-to-one analog, but, and again, this goes to where they, like, what their role is in later books. I'm not going to spoil too much. Yeah. But there is definitely a deliberate uh, choice on Herbert's part to use them as a way to explore, again, how religious orders shape history uh, throughout time.
0: I got you. Well, they, they, they show you enough in the movie To know, like, wow, these are some pretty powerful folks, but they, they leave it mysterious and to the point where, you know, there's like a lot more there that like we're only seeing so much of. I'm wondering, given again, like do your best to like not tell us too much, but like, do you guys think that, you know, for whatever this movie is on its own and as a piece of a larger story, they told us the right amount of of this order to to set up what's to come effectively because like me not knowing anything better i thought i thought they i thought they did a pretty good job i mean uh i should mention uh because there's just like i only mentioned that i actually think we only really mentioned the three the the Chalamet, Rebecca Ferguson and Oscar Isaac when i was first opening this i mean this movie just has like a freaking loaded cast even beyond them and uh Charlotte Rampling has like a terrifying turn as the Reverend Mother uh the the, the leader of the Bene Gesserit and uh the, we we meant i think we might have mentioned duncan idaho he's played by jason momoa um other, a lot of other people stopped by we might get to oh, oh i did mention javier bardin but there's also you know dave batista and um actually i did mention mean, favorite, too. uh david batista yeah. yeah i i really dug his like first five minutes in uh 2049 so I was, it's cool that he got to like you know playing a and ser- in, in, in a little more serious role like this again as much as i love him in the guardians movies but yeah like uh, just, just step getting getting back to the Ben Ager Sarah like Charlotte Rampling was terrifying and I was like all right I am pretty interested in these people and they've done a good job in like getting me a little hooked to find out more How did you think they unveiled them as this as a part of this story Fred
2: I think it's going to be interesting to see um, how Rebecca Ferguson keeps growing in that role because uh, she obviously is still a major part of Paul's life as this movie ends and she's made some choices that the movie kind of hints at um, that are more explored in the book uh, to essentially defy that order because they had a lot of plans going on in the background. And what she did uh, by birthing a son essentially messed up all of their beautifully laid plans. So that kind of ties very nicely into this whole idea of um, what Ben was describing very well earlier, sort of this uh, arc of history that's sort of uh, present in the entire book uh, where choices made by individuals, can really cause this massive ripple effect where all of a sudden um, centuries of um, schemes that were already in place uh, suddenly are no longer there. And I think the movie does a good job of hinting at the power that the, the, the Order has because uh, as soon as Charlotte Rampling shows up, Lady Jessica, who's really a very strong presence... In the film and in the Atreides household, even though she never officially uh, got to marry Duke Leto, um, you can see that she really just starts to completely, um, like, she loses a lot she of, shrinks. She, a shrinks. Lot of like, like she shrinks, she shrinks. It's, like, yeah. very Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And uh, all of a sudden, like, there's nothing that she can do for Paul anymore. Like, it's a really wonderful scene when he has to uh, put his hand in the box uh, and he has the gom jabbar at his neck. Uh, Because at that point, it's just a very strong sense of powerlessness against just this one woman who really doesn't seem all that powerful on her own. All she does is she's holding a box and she has this needle, but she's like really exerting an amount of influence there that is kind of unprecedented in the film. And you never really see anybody just singularly doing that kind of thing again, where it has such a strong effect on uh, characters not having agency anymore. So without going into too much detail of what the Order even did in the background to get us to that point, we can see how much power they hold. And I thought that scene was really effective at conveying that.
0: Well, I want to ask you, uh, Ben, also largely about the Ben and Sarah, But I, you also mentioned how she never really had the... Well, she, I, I don't know exactly good what goes into that, but she never actually married Leto. And he, there's actually a a, a a moment in the movie where he says, I should have married you. Uh, but I'm wondering how the books portray the relationship such that... Like, in the books, is it clear that, like, they're in love, but these other larger forces and the agenda of the Bene Gesserit were keeping them apart? Or is there something else that kind of, like, goes into that, whether it be the law or the religion or just, or like I said, again, the Bene Gesserit? Is the, is, the, is there something that the, that the movie left unexplored with respect to their relationship, Ben?
1: Well, I mean, I don't remember if the movie explicitly used the word, but in the book, she's pretty explicitly referred to as Leto's concubine.
2: Mm-hmm. The movie does it, too.
1: Okay, yeah, I I was pretty sure, but I I wasn't 100% on that. But yeah, no, she's us Concubine and it's it's generally treated as, again, basically they, they love each other. Um, I don't remember the books really. like i I'm pretty sure the the scene with I should have married you was an invention from the movie, but it's been a while since I reread the first book. so 100% sure I'm not one hundred percent sure on that.
0: it's also the movie's like two um, and a half hours, so I'm not blaming it necessarily for not like showing us their love. Like, you know, I get it. like you you can't have everything, but i I, I was just kind of curious about but, that myself. Uh, but,
1: but what is interesting though, is and this is interesting. Co- some context for my relationship with the books. I actually read the first Dune for the first time shortly after I read the Song of Ice and books, which I read back in high school. Um, and strangely enough was actually kind of struck by some like very real parallels too. And I I, I actually, I, I as much as I really do not like seasons five through eight of the Game of Thrones TV show, I really do still like those first few scenes of the show and the books a lot, in large part because of the way they show, again, these dynamics between characters who have their own agendas and beliefs and desires and how larger forces and their responsibilities uh, can often interfere with those desires. And I think that there is something similar in Dune where we see as going back to this example, you have Jessica and Leto as people who do love each other, but on some level, their relationship is cover is colored by the fact that their official position is Lord and concubine. They, I mean, their relationship is very clearly defined as one that is ultimately loving, but it is the, the, it is colored by the position that they occupy. Um, I, I do think the movie did a really good job with Jessica and with the Bene Gesserit as a whole. Like, I absolutely agree with Fred on on that initial sequence with Charlotte Rambling. It was a perfect way of setting up the very peculiar imposing nature of that character. And the thing I kind of liked most about it, and this was kind of my one issue with Jessica a little bit, was the slight overemphasis on martial strength as what makes her and the Bene Gesserit as a whole com- like compelling and intimidating. Um, like I didn't love the slight overemphasis the movie put on like the, the voice as so defining and of Jessica as basically being this like warrior woman. Um, whereas what I think is so interesting about the Bene Gesserit as a whole is this kind of subtler political power that they wield. Um, and I think that first scene and the, the use of the voice in that sequence felt so much more appropriate. And as a whole, I really liked what they did with, with The Order and with Jessica as a whole. It's just that one thread is, is the thing that like gave me a little bit of pause just because I think that, I, I, I know Villeneuve explicitly wanted to kind of give her a little more agency and more of a, a, a compelling personal story arc in, in the movies. I don't know if focusing on her basically strength in battle is necessarily the best way to go about that. And again, we'll see where that goes in part two, but what I found most interesting about her character, the way she was used and the way the Ben Jesuit were used had very little to do with that.
0: We, I love, oh, sorry. Well, no, I was just going to say, like, conversely, there's the scene where um, where the Reverend Mother is is talking to Baron Harkonnen on behalf of the emperor. And is, you know, is is like kind of explaining the ways in which the emperor will assist, but also how, look, you need to spare Jessica and Paul, uh, given their connections to us. Is that kind of more what you're getting at, whereas you wanted to see them maneuvering in that way and wielding their influence in that manner? Yeah. And
1: again, it's not that you can't show Jessica fighting. It's and and part of this is part of this too is colored by an interview where Villeneuve kind of said that he was like explicitly trying to kind of fill that void Jessica's character by kind of making her more imposing in combat. And and so there were just a few sequences where it felt like especially compared to how the book handled it, like Jessica basically disarming Stilgar, like instantaneous, like that, that wasn't necessarily how i saw the character Hmm. um but in general i really liked the depiction and moments like again the reverend mother basically coldly negotiating uh for paul and jessica's safety with very little actual regard for them as people um and that initial sequence with paul sticking his hand in the box and specifically the way jessica absolutely breaks down in response to it Those moments I thought were absolutely fantastic and I thought really captured the Bene Gesserit as I saw them when I was reading the books. Like in general, I think there were a lot of things that weren't just adapted well, but were almost entirely the way I saw them in my mind, like as I was reading the books. Wow. Um, Like we haven't really talked about the visuals much so far.
0: I mean, yeah, that was gonna that that was probably gonna be the next place I was gonna go to. Like, I mean, we could we could probably be here in another hour talking about it. But I mean, so we've 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 mentioned we've mentioned Star Wars, we've mentioned Game of Thrones, and like we could go through any number of franchises. But I mean, do you think Ben that like this this does kind of like I mean I don't want to say fully stand apart, but do you think this like do you think this like kind of lived up to the hype as like what it had the potential to be as far as a visual spectacle worthy of the theater experience that we were advocating for at the beginning of this podcast?
1: Absolutely. Um, and it's not just because big explosions go boom. Part of what is so interesting about Dune, and this again gets to what is so dense about it, Dune is not just a random sci-fi world like distant past, distant future doesn't matter. There is an attempt to actually build out from Herbert's perspective, a vision of what humanity could become like 20,000 years in the future. This is not a long, long time ago in a galaxy far away. This is humanity 20,000 years in the future after colonizing the stars. What do we become? And to accomplish that, there is a very detailed, intricate, and densely constructed like vision of everything in totality, from the arch- architecture, to the technology, to the way little elements of the culture are built around other elements. Like everything ties together in a way that is incredibly dense and incredibly detailed and incredibly incredibly important to capture well. And I think visually, the movie made a vision of Arrakis and a vision of the cosmos of the Dune universe that feels coherent. And I think that's part of what makes it visually so compelling. It's not just that things are dynamic and interesting and strange and incredible and captured incredibly well. It's that everything feels like part of the same well-developed universe. Everything comes together. Like it all grew together.
0: I would agree with that. I want to ask you about any other, like some other specific sequences possibly, but I also want to ask Fred since he's also a book reader, uh, You know, and people can envision different things when they read a book. I mean, uh, uh, not that like when uh, something is put to screen, it's always a signifier of it being good just because it matches up with what you read in your head. But it's but I mean, it's I think none of us would dispute the fact that they put some pretty spectacular images on the screen. And that's cool that it matched up with what Ben saw. But uh, Fred did, did did this come to life in any way that you envisioned it was it even grander was it even more intricate than you could have hoped for what was your kind of initial impression as you saw these different images that uh uh, that both Villeneuve and I I I also want to uh shout out cinematographer Greg Frazier um who has uh done done a lot of different things as well you know he did zero dark 30 and rogue one is going to be doing the batman uh but yeah fred what 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 was what were your initial big takeaways just as far as the look of this film because i mean again uh you, I, you made that first point earlier about like look this is worth seeing in theater so i'm sure there was a few different uh things in here that really struck a chord with you
2: well it was certainly uh more visually impressive than the 80s version which uh, <laughs> David Lynch, by the way, refuses to talk about in interviews and just has oh, I didn't a very, know, I didn't know that. Has a very yeah. viscerally negative reaction every time it's brought up. Um, in part because uh, Final Cut privilege got taken away from him and the studio like really uh, botched it down to a much shorter version than he had intended. Uh, but I honestly just think the biggest problem with the film is, is that it's ugly. The 1980s film it has a sort of aesthetical sense that matches... Um, And I know this is a little nerdy, but um, I'm a big Doctor Who fan. And I also enjoy some of the classic era of Doctor Who. But there was a time in the 1980s when the show just uh, had very poor special effects and really just sort of embraced the 1980s visual style. And some of those episodes from that time are just difficult to look at nowadays. And the 1980s version of Dune has a very similar issue, um, even though it cost a lot of money. It actually costs, I think, four times as much as the first Star Wars movie, and Hmm. it doesn't look nearly half as good. Obviously, uh, Villeneuve had a lot of money to make his vision uh, a reality that doesn't automatically create uh, spectacular images. Obviously, more work goes into that than just uh, a blank check. But at the same time, the whole point of Arrakis is that it's uh, a sort of natural spectacle that's meant to dwarf the people that are inhabiting it. Like, it's a harsh environment, and the colonizers, for them, it's really um, about survival, because this is a kind of harsh environment they're not used to at all. The Fremen, on the other hand, they have found ways to adapt to that environment, and we even see it uh, at the very end of the movie. They even have found a way to ride on these uh, really just uh, mesmerizing sandworms. And that is probably my favorite scene of the film, and it also was one of my favorite scenes in the book. When Gurney, Paul, uh, the Duke, and Dr. Kynes first fly out uh, into the sand dunes, and they're trying to evacuate uh, the workers from the rig, and then the sandworm approaches, which is just an absolutely terrific achievement in the film as well. Because that is really where I was thinking, man, it would have been a shame to see this on the small screen. Like that's really where just this uh, massive screen in front of you, as you see the worm slowly approaching. And coming your way as they're trying to get everybody off that rig that really just kind of pops
0: well not not only that but where it not only that were but where things could have like easily just like gone off the rails visually if like they like made that worm look like ridiculous in the wrong way
2: yeah yeah and the thing is they're patient about it it's kind of like every mo- every good monster movie waits a while before they reveal their scary creature And as the worm is approaching underneath the sand, we don't really get to see the worm yet. It's just kind of hinted at uh, what's really moving towards them. And then only at the very end, when they've already boarded and are flying up, you see this just gigantic mouth open up underneath them. And then you realize, wow, so this is actually what they're fighting and what they're dealing with on a day-to-day basis. Well, what's
1: interesting about that moment, too, is even in that moment of revelation, we don't actually see the worm. We see the worm's mouth as this almost like charybdis-esque like massive like teeth and like just long, strange teeth that like totally swallows up our viewpoint and swallows up this like massive like uh, spice harvester. But we don't actually see the whole worm at this point. And, and it's meant to be, because for Paul, this is the first time he's seen something like this large, this intimidating, this alien and monstrous, and it's a much more interesting touch to leave it hidden at this point. So I I absolutely agree with Fred on kind of the the particular depiction of the worm and the depiction of of hiding it as being so important to kind of giving it this intimidating, awe-inspiring air. In, In general, I think Villeneuve, and this is kind of, Back to what I was saying earlier about him being again one of like two directors who is capable of kind of creating blockbuster imagery that inspires real awe, is because first and foremost, he is not a blockbuster filmmaker, he's a filmmaker. Um, he is someone who is concerned with actual style with composition of images as more than just okay, I am putting on screen this thing. The actual particular effect of a shot is more important than the literal things
0: that are on screen um, Yeah, well and I, I think i was listening to another podcast and I can't, I can't remember who so i'm sorry i'm not giving credit to them where they made the point where it seems like he'd Villeneuve more than a lot of directors probably just has a very good sense of scale yeah and like and i and i and i, and I had to think about that for a minute because i was like well yeah like he obviously pulls off a lot of shots or like a big stage spaceship is like docking on something and you just yell massive it looks and it's like then i had to think about it. i was like well yeah like they didn't build a fucking spaceship for this movie. Like they had to like, so it's not only that, like they, they got the, they got the shot, right. With, with respect to that, but it's like a combination of that. And also like creating something that gigantic that obviously is in, is largely being aided in com- by computer imaging that like, you know, doesn't look like something that was made by a computer. So I think like, it's some he- of the
1: most compelling shots from Blade Runner 2049. Um, I mean, there's kind of the, the obvious two moments that come to mind purely in terms of, like sense of scale is the 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 giant hologram of, of joy and the particular strangeness of this moment of seeing this much larger version of the character almost dwarfing
0: mm-hmm.
1: Ryan Gosling, but also the first time we go to the 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 ruins of Las Vegas. Right. And again the way you have the desert that has overtaken these massive structures and you have these small characters who are almost like in like bugs or like bugs or ghosts wandering this strange land. Uh, I, I absolutely, basically, I absolutely agree with what you're saying about Wilma's well, sense of scale. And I think you can actually look at his other movies to see more evidence of that.
0: Well, and I'll, well on, on top of that, I guess it's that's like the one thing that stood out to me in that, you know, not that I'm like the most sophisticated person when it comes to breaking down a film cinematography but or or its coloring and lighting. But like, you know, one thing I often look for when I'm looking at the when I'm trying to talk about the how a movie looks is just its colors. And I mean, one thing that by necessity of the world that this is set in, there's not that much color. So I can't remember the last time I watched a movie with this little cover that blew me away visually. And I think it's kind of cool that they can keep you engaged visually in that way with like with with such a necessarily limited color palette, because of just so many other striking images it conjures based largely on on scale and these, like I said before, I mean, not just largely computer generated, but also like largely fictitious creatures or occurrences and making them like, not and it's not having to ever take you out of the movie because anything feels like too hokey or um, inauthentic.
1: Well, I know Fred, I'm pretty sure has seen this movie, but Josh, I forgot. Have you seen Lawrence of Arabia? I am actually don't think I have. Okay, first off, you should see, see Lawrence yeah. of Arabia. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But Villeneuve has actually talked specifically about how that was a big uh, influence in the way he planned on capturing the desert in this movie. Hmm. And it actually goes entirely to what Fred was talking about before with again, these outsiders who are almost overwhelmed by this by the strangeness of the desert and that contrasted with the Fremen or in, in the case of Lawrence of Arabia the actual like Middle Easterners who are who are more at home in in the land and kind of the difference in the ways they relate to the desert, but also the way that people are dwarfed by the actual scale and scope of this vast, unending landscape. And I, I think that goes a long way to kind of capturing the alien feel of Arrakis. But it, it's like it is a movie that Villeneuve has talked specifically about as an influence. So I do think it's worth bringing bringing up in the context of this.
2: And Villeneuve also has a clearly shows a lot of delight in just sort of like slowly revealing his locations to us because there is a scene in every single one of his uh, science fiction movies. There's a scene in Arrival. There's several scenes like this in Blade Runner 2049 and in Dune as well. In Arrival, it's when Amy Adams first arrives at the spaceship. Yeah. Like you can slowly sort of see them fly towards it as the ship shows up. In Blade Runner, uh, it's the very first scene actually and then also where Ryan Gosling's character flies into the city and the buildings are relatively small and they get taller and taller and taller as he sort of flies into the city until we get to the massive skyscrapers. Uh, And then here as well on Arrakis when uh, they first arrive and they fly over the desert and you really get to see all of it uh, for the first time. And that's what Villeneuve is so good at. He doesn't just like give you quick glimpses of what he has built. Like he really just takes pleasure in just slowly showing you everything and opening it up right in front of you so you get to take it all in. And there's a real strong sense of visual awe to that method because um, we really get to experience it at the same time as the characters do. And it's a really cool effect that I've liked in all of his movies.
1: We also get a contrast between their individual perspective. Again, starting out small like that, it gives us something that is more like an individual's viewpoint before kind of showing the contrast between that and the absolute vastness of the land itself. Mm-hmm. So I, I absolutely agree with Fred's point. I think it actually... Works as a way of showing both extremes. This kind of very limited individual perspective on something so strange and compelling, but also the vastness of this strange and compelling thing, just in isolation. Um, putting both of those together in one shot absolutely has that awe-inspiring effect.
2: He does it Do in you, Sicario too. But I forgot. About uh, yeah, that you
1: can also find examples of it in Incendies. In um,
2: not exactly so. in the same
1: way, but there, there that that same. Use of limited perspective towards illumination of kind of this larger, stranger environment.
0: It's good to know. I, I meant I wanted to try and squeeze it in in sunday's because it's like his only one. I, I I mean I know he did some other foreign stuff before then, but that was kind of like his first breakthrough on. Well, uh, our, so I was actually
1: talking about this with someone recently. *Polytechnique* uh, came out before, um, and I love both of those movies. There's an argument for *Incendies* being his best movie in general. Wow. Um, man, now I feel bad. I didn't watch it before we talked. I will look, I will say both of them, uh, don't, don't plan anything to, to do after you watch, or maybe just plan someone (laughs) to come give you a hug afterwards. Okay. Okay.
0: Uh, I appreciate that. They're, they're, Um, they're,
1: they're both pretty heavy.
0: Got it. Um, Ben, are there any other we, like we, I kind of ran through a little bit of the cast earlier, but like I feel yeah. like the one of the only things we haven't really touched on yet is mainly the performances into themselves. We talked about Xiaomei and Rebecca Ferguson a little bit, but there's just a whole laundry list of supporting uh, characters that all get their moments in this movie. I mean, maybe maybe most more so than Zendaya, who's clearly going to be a bigger part of the next movie. But um, or is, there, is there anyone else who, like, made a big impression on you in the limited screen time? Because I would say no one other than the people we've already talked about really has, like, extended screen time. Uh, besides maybe Momoa, who I only briefly mentioned, who I think gotten a lot of praise. But did anyone really stand out to you and be like, oh, wow, like that person really brought a lot to this, even though they weren't given a ton to do?
1: There actually is one specific actor I want to talk about. Like, yes, yeah. I, I love Rebecca Ferguson. I, I I loved Oscar Isaac, actually.
0: Um, as limited as the character was, was good for him because he, he hasn't he hasn't been in a lot of good movies recently. So I was happy for him.
1: Um I will fight you on the card counter,
0: but Okay, I still haven't made it to the card counter. Okay, my my bad. Okay. Like yeah. I, it... quick quick tangent. The card yeah.
1: counter is like up there with first reform for me. So
0: Damn. Okay. Well, yeah, yeah. no. It, it, it was and he may be my pick for
1: best actor this year.
0: Shit. All right. Yeah. It was only in theaters for like a limited time. And like, I just, it just, I, I, I had like a one week window to see it and I would have had to have driven 30 minutes and it just, I just didn't make it happen. I'm going to watch it before like we get to like all the award season yeah. stuff. But, that's uh, that's
1: another one where I actually, I saw it with my cousin. We both were literally silent for five minutes after the movie ended just sitting there in the theater. Cause it Jeez. was that, it hit us that hard. That tangent aside, I thought Oscar Isaac did a really good job um, finding depth in somewhat slight material. He gave the moment of Leto's kind of last stand, a gravity and dignity that I thought really sold what could have come off as somewhat cheap and hackneyed, if not for the performance itself. So I thought he did a very good job, but the actor who I really want to highlight, and this is another, just this is how I visualize the character moment, Stellan Skarsgård who endows again, Baron Harkonnen with this absolutely Repulsive, bloated, just vile, evil. It, it, he's not. There's nothing mustache twirling. There's nothing ble- he- like bleak or intimidating. He is kind of the the swollen husk of like Western colonialism brought to life. And visually, I mean, it he it, like visually is how I uh, like saw the character reading the books, but also. In terms of the performance itself, like that actually matches very well with even just the basic mannerisms of how I saw the character. And the particular form of evil that I, I felt from his performance, I thought really served Baron Harkonnen well. He's a fairly like generic villain, at least in this section. But I really liked that performance for turning what could have been again, a generic character uh, in the wrong hands into, some, into something and someone more memorable. And I do think again, another like very obvious reference point from Villeneuve, the way the Baron is revealed to us is pretty, well not even revealed, but the kind of the, the way he's depicted as a whole is pretty uh, in common with Marlon Brando in Apocalypse Now. Yeah. Like there is that moment of him like in the bath Like it's been talked about before that it was a pretty obvious reference point for the character, but I I do think it is worth mentioning. And I'm not normally, like, I'm not going to give Villeneuve too many extra points for kind of overuse of references, but I thought all of those references felt appropriate, especially because those particular movies are ones that I think are important in the context of on-screen depictions of colonialism and imperialism. Mm -hmm. Um, But I really like Skarsgård. Like Oscar Isaac, like I said, loved uh, Rebecca Ferguson and Charlotte Rampling. Uh, Timothy Chalamet was in the movie, but yeah, I mean, as as a whole, I think beyond that, most actors did a good job. Javier Bardem, I definitely did like a lot, but hopefully, we'll see a little more depth depth to the character in the next movie.
0: True, Fred. Did it, anyone you wanted to highlight especially?
2: Um, I thought Jason Momoa did a lot with a character who got really shafted in the 80s movie and barely even appeared at all. Here you get a real sense that he's very affectionate towards Paul and that his um sort of like easy, but that you see that diplomacy comes to the guy easily in the sense that he was probably the best choice to ingratiate himself with the Fremen out of uh, anybody at uh, Duke Leto's court. And also, there's Um, not a lot
0: on the... I don't think there's like necessarily a ton on the page that's also all that special necessarily about how that character is written here. I think a lot of it just comes with his like disposition.
2: Yeah, and I also appreciate that Josh Brolin has uh, the self-awareness that he always plays the character who has to be told that he needs to smile and then just still looks grumpy. (laughs) So I like that he's always game to uh, play characters uh, of that nature, although... Again, there's there's more to that character than meets the eye, so uh, I won't say much more about uh, Gurney. But the few times we did see him, I thought he did a pretty good job with uh a role that uh was actually played by Patrick Stewart in the 80s version. And one hmm. of the I would in say fact. better performances in that movie, yeah.
0: I really like that sequence with um where Stephen McKinley Henderson's uh Ben, correct me if I'm wrong, is it uh Hawat? Uh, uh To Fear Hawat, yeah, but To Fear Hawat where where he tries to resign and leto doesn't let him after he hasn't uh after like he fall fails to like detect that there's there's some kind of person that's infiltrated uh atreides that uh, is responsible for the hunter seeker that almost kills paul i like when he like resigns and you've already seen paul embrace him once but it's he's very effective in very clearly being disturbed at himself for a perceived failure in such a way that like look that guy doesn't have a lot of screen time but you get some kind of sense though of like why house Atreides has been as successful as they are and why um, the emperor seems to maybe be a little worried about the amount of power they could accrue. Cause uh, they have people that are disloyal and passionate about them. And he, again, doesn't have a lot of scenes, but like I thought it just said a lot how he reacted and interacted with Leto in that scene, Ben, it seemed like you had something you wanted to add there. Well, so two things. I mean,
1: one, he's, he's a mentor. And actually one character who I wish we saw a little more of was uh Peter, who is the Harkonnen's Mentot, who I don't even know if we got, if was, he was named in the movie, uh, played by David Destmacallian, Des or I always forget how to pronounce his name.
0: I thought it was Destmacallian, but yeah. Des Malchian, like that. that sounds yeah. about right.
1: But yeah, I, I wish we got a little more from him. The Mentots in general are kind of one of those things that are a part of like Dune, the Dune universe that are really in depth and interesting, especially if you kind of know some of the larger like lore stories behind them. But the thing that, like, I just remembered while you were talking, the one cameo I actually wanted to point out. Do do you guys know who Benjamin Clementine is?
0: No, it rings a little bit of a bell, but I cannot
1: place it. Okay. He is a British musician who is one of my absolute favorites. He is a truly unique, beautiful, brilliant weirdo. His music is a combination of like jazz, classical, pop, anything you can possibly bring in outside of it he's a truly unique weirdo whose music whenever he does release stuff is always some of the most brilliant and thought-provoking and interesting stuff of that given year Hmm. and his first uh on-screen appearance was as the speaker for the empire in that first scene where uh oscar isaac is officially like made the region of arrakis
0: oh
1: uh, I'm not saying the performance itself was great But the fact that this movie <laughs> had Benjamin Clementine in it Means that it's a 10 out of 10 Flawless, perfect, and will never be
0: Did you know he was going to be in it Until he actually showed up while you were watching I it? didn't realize that was him until I saw the credits Oh, okay
1: Because <laughs> so I wasn't even thinking, oh yeah, Benjamin Clementine will be in this movie Like I-, I wasn't even thinking to look for him Just because he literally has never acted before And also he has like very He has very like, easily identifiable hair That I guess he has like shaved recently Mm. so gotcha
0: yeah can't blame me for not recognizing one of your favorite artists if he went through that big of a, a costume wardrobe sure. hair styling change uh fred any final thoughts on dune things we didn't touch on other points you wanted to make before we wrap this up
2: um it's a very good Hans zimmer score oh yeah kind of surprised that uh he used backpipes but it did fit in the moment uh, the <laughs> one thing i will say is um the movie did suffer a little bit from tenet syndrome in the sense that a lot of times the really majestic score was drowning out some of the conversations. Um, I don't know if that was just in the movie theater or if that's uh, an effect people are going to experience at home as well. Uh, but during those scenes, I had uh, the distinct sense that subtitles would have been useful. But um, that's just like a small issue that I had that uh, I'm not even sure if that was just in my showing specifically um, or if that's a general issue. But yeah, it, it was a very impressive score, and I hope that he, uh, he'll collect some uh, awards, nominations for that.
0: I uh, wouldn't be shocked. Uh, ben, any other final thoughts? Sounds like uh, you'd recommend the movie and you're looking forward to what's next, though.
1: Yeah, I, I'll, I've talked a lot about it, so I'll try to be quick. Um, in general, liked it a lot. Definitely have some reservations. Um, one particular thing that I hope the... Second movie, it a little bit more, is the strangeness, the philosophical complexity, and the inherent surreality of uh, the material. Like this one, the the note I would have, the, the visual note I would have for this movie, is there is somewhat of a flatness to the look. Um, and part of that is the, the material itself gets more surreal in the second half but I would like to see Villeneuve embrace some of that a little bit more. Like I mentioned before, I still dream of Alejandro Jodorowsky's Dune. And if, if Villeneuve can try to channel a little bit of that energy, I, I, I would hope he would uh, embrace some, some more uh, like out there surreal psychedelic choices uh, with, the, with the second half. As a whole though, liked it a lot. And even with some of the notes I had, there were at least moments in this movie that gave me hope that those notes will be handled better in in the second movie.
0: Gotcha. Fred, anything else you want to plug that you've been watching recently? There's going to be like, we're going to have other podcasts before this comes out on like No Time to Die, which you already recorded, but I still haven't posted yet. And uh, Last Duel Slash Lamb Halloween Kills. Well, I mean, sorry, dude. I can only edit so much in one week. <laughs> um, the that, that, That'll that will be out within like three days of us recording this. It is totally in the can, but podcasts on The Last Duel slash Lamb, Halloween Kills are still yet to be edited. And so like, there's going to be a lot of other stuff that comes out by the time people hear
2: this, but uh,
0: anything else you want to plug though that you've been consuming recently, whether it's been TV or movies or books or whatnot?
2: All right, so first of all, happy Thanksgiving, guys, since that is seemingly <laughs> really coming out. Um, Merry Christmas, on that... too. <laughs> <laughs> um, on that note, I'll be quick. Um, I know I didn't do a very good job selling it, but if you do want to experience the original Dune from the 80s, it is available on HBO Max. Um, it is. It does not come highly recommended from me, but if you want to do it to yourself, uh, that's where you can find it. Uh, the other thing is if um, Dune kind of woke up your... Um, Um, I guess, interest in that kind of science fiction. Uh, Apple TV is currently uh, airing an adaptation of uh, Isaac Asimov's foundation. Uh, And when I say adaptation, it's apparently not much of an adaptation, but more of a rethinking of uh, the source material. Um, But it's a pretty cool um, science fiction epic that takes uh, place over several uh, decades and generations, also has a lot of really intricate world-building Definitely doesn't go as in depth as June does, but it's still very visually impressive. Uh, I think the first seven episodes have now aired, so by the time this is put out, uh, I'm sure the entire first season will be available. Yeah, you don't have to keep reminding is, me how I'm
0: being very slow, Fred.
2: And that is, well, I, well, again, I have to make sure that I say uh, this I to my audience because, uh, as I'm saying this, um, right, they'll be right, hearing right, right. it in a very different context. Um, so I assume by now the entire first season will be available on Apple TV. Um, so feel free to check that out It's got Lee Pace, Jared Harris uh, A couple of other new faces uh, You might be hearing more of So yeah, well, Foundation, uh, Apple TV
0: I like both those guys Ben, anything else you've watched recently You want to direct people to? Anything you've already seen with your LA privilege That might be coming to our theater soon Or anything like that
1: Well, exactly um, So the, there are two movies I saw recently That I absolutely loved That are sort of LA privilege But one of them I think we're probably going to be doing a podcast on uh, At some point whenever it comes out. So you should see Bergman Island. It's amazing. I absolutely love it. But I'll talk about that another time. The movie that absolutely took me by surprise that I saw recently, just because I wasn't really expecting anything from it. Um, you may have heard about a movie that got some really good reviews at Con this year called Drive My Car. I have not seen that one yet, but the dire- that director's previous movie, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, uh, did a very short run in L.A., and it, is, it has been a very long time since my first experience with a filmmaker has captured me that much and has immediately cemented them as one of my favorites. It is an anthology film, uh, all three, basically three kind of 40 minute long shorts, all of which deal with love, human relationships, and in some form or another, characters who are lying wearing masks or projecting something else onto other people. Every single sequence is better than the last. It is the most honest, wise, and compelling exploration of love that I have seen in a movie in literal years. And it is also clearly coming from a filmmaker who even in capturing material as restrained, human, and quiet as in this movie, has an incredible cinematic mind and has such a free visual sense that he can weave moments of dreamlike imagination into very standard conversations without you feeling any sort of departure or confusion. Um, Wheel of Fortune Fantasy is one of my favorite movies of the year. I highly recommend it. Um, It is lively, has a spark, is intimate, and if you are looking for on-screen representations of love and relationship that actually feel grounded in the real, in real depth of human feeling, cannot recommend it enough.
0: Great. Well, that's a pretty impressive sell. I'll be I'll be quick, I guess. Uh, as Ben noted, we're at some point in the next couple of weeks, be recording a podcast on Bergman Island. So Ben sent me on my lone little mini Ingmar Bergman educational tour and also uh, gave me a Mia Hansen love recommendation. So I would tell people like a lot of the Bergman stuff is on HBO max. If you've seen anything about Bergman Island and you think you'd like to like, you know, do some homework for it. You can find a lot of his stuff there. Uh, I was able to watch and it, like, it's like stuff where they like, kind of like, I guess have some kind of deal with criterion going right now. So it's like, it's like the criterion versions of a lot of stuff. And, uh, I, 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 I did enjoy wild strawberries. Uh, I'm not going to really talk about it right now. Cause I'm worried that like Ben and I are already going to end up talking about that stuff for like three hours in a couple of weeks. Uh, but like, go, go watch that. Like a lot of them aren't that long. And it's, um, and, and it's actually kind of like a easier watch in some ways. Cause part of what it seems like I've enjoyed about Bergman is that, like, like whether it be that or the seventh C like, you know, it's like, it's profound stuff but like in in fun packaging in certain ways is what i would say fred mentioned apple tv plus i'll just get out of here by saying support my girl haley steinfeld final season of dickinson premieres in like we'll we'll have aired like three episodes by the time people listen to this uh fred uh do you want to play your letterbox
2: sure feel free to follow me on letterbox uh, that's uh, fred kolb f-r-e-d-k-o-l-b you can also uh, follow me on twitter if you want uh My handle there is the German. I don't post a lot of stuff about movies, but uh, if you thought the stuff I was saying sounded semi-intelligent, then you might enjoy some of my Twitter content too. So give me a follow there as well.
0: There you go. Ben, you've been popping up on Letterboxd a little more recently. Where can people find yours?
1: Yeah, trying to at least review a few things. Um, Yeah, my Letterboxd is just my name, Ben Lubin, L-U-B-E-N. I am basically on no other social media other than Facebook reluctantly because social media is the devil. But if you want to follow me on Letterboxd, uh, that's where you can find me.
0: Yeah. If, 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 if you ever decide to get off Facebook, you got to remember, I actually still don't have your phone number. I've met both you, Josh Brown and Daniel Lima multiple times in person and have talked for hours on upon hours on podcasts with you guys. Don't have anyone's phone number. I'd like to see how long I can keep that going. <laughs> but like, I only communicate with Ben through uh, Facebook Messenger. Um, as usual, I'm Josh Jernivoy, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-Y on both Twitter and Letterboxd and on, uh, Twitter, the podcast is at RewindMoviePod. Podcast email is RewindMoviePod at gmail.com. Coming up next, either last night in Soho or the French Dispatch, have to figure out what order I'm recording those in yet, but, uh, those two will be next up after this. So thanks again to Ben and Fred for being so generous with their time and joining me. Um, they'll both be back at some point during awards season. So everyone, uh, look forward to that. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.